welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and pick their brains about what they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by medical entomologist, science communicator, and mosquito wrangler, Cameron Webb. Cameron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, James. Uh, nice to be on the podcast. No worries. No, I, I need your help. You do a lot of this. You spend a lot of time out there explaining your science to the public. So I want your help uh, improving my interview skills. I want to make sure if there's a question I definitely shouldn't ask because you're just absolutely sick of hearing it and your eyes roll back in your head every time. Just so I know not to ask it. What, what would that be? Um you really do love mosquitoes, don't you, Cameron? So just uh, write that down, cross it out, and then we'll be good to go. All right. I won't even ask what the answer is. I'm going to assume that we'll, we'll find out what that is by the I might, re- <laughs> end I of might the interview. reveal the answer in our conversation. That's the. Uh, it's hard to hide. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those areas that I mean, everyone's got an opinion on, right? Yeah, everyone's got a story about um, uh, mosquitoes. Most of those stories relate to how much they're annoyed by mosquitoes. <laughs> Um, And it's my job to uh, bring to light the more fascinating and uh, interesting aspects of of mosquitoes and their their life cycles. I mean, we're mostly familiar with the ones that turn up in our backyards and at our family picnics and whatnot. But I mean, how many different types of mosquitoes are there in Australia? What are we looking at? Yeah, so in Australia, we've got about 300 species of mosquito. Uh, they think about 3,000 internationally, but um, there's probably lots we don't ever see. And, and the reason for that is that a lot of mosquitoes have very specific ecological niches and they don't, might not fly very far. So unless you're in the depths of the jungle or the forest, there's mozzies buzzing about there that we'd have very little interaction with. And we think about mosquitoes as being really significant pests or public health concerns, but really it's only a small percentage of the mosquitoes across the world that really are a, a significant pest or public health threat. So there's many going about their own business that have uh, very very little interactions with um, with people. Do we know what these other ones are up to? Like, are, are people just not interested in them because they're not bothering us people? Yeah, well, medical me- medical entomologists like me, so entomologists who study sort of arthropods or invertebrates of, of medical significance, um, are really interested in the mosquitoes that are spreading the pathogens that make us sick or they're trying to work out ways to more effectively kill mosquitoes. And so for a mosquito that doesn't pose a threat to us, we're generally not very interested in it. So, um, <laughs> you know, scientists haven't been... One of the biggest gaps in our, in our knowledge of mosquitoes, and, you know, keeping in mind mosquitoes are probably one of the insects that more people study above almost any other, um, we're probably least concerned about their ecology and their role in, in ecosystems. And so for those mosquitoes that do go about their ecological business, um, um, you know, if there's no interaction with people, there's often um, uh, no, uh, no interest in undertaking research in them, at least not uh, in any sort of large, large-scale projects. That kind of worries me when I hear about uh, people talking about mosquito eradication programs for our benefit, because I, I was under the impression that we actually don't know a whole lot about their natural ecology as well. If a mosquito eradication program was used, would that be some sort of a, a, I don't know, potential ecological disaster? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because 
Um, now with some of these emerging technologies where they're either genetically manipulating mosquitoes or they're uh, introducing um, parasites or pathogens into mosquitoes in the laboratory and releasing them in the wild with the purpose of crashing local mosquito populations, possibly even locally eradicating them. You know, this is a question that comes up all the time, is if we have the ability to eradicate mosquitoes, uh, should we? And I think the answer is pretty complicated, actually, because while... Um, we know that mosquitoes do provide some ecosystem service in some situations. Like We know there's a whole range of birds and bats and fish and frogs and spiders that eat mosquitoes. Mosquitoes play a role in pollinating some plants. They probably help nutrient recycling in, in water bodies as well. The reality is, is that some of the mosquitoes that really pose a significant health burden have given up their natural habitats and moved into home in the water holding containers around our backyards and places where we live. And so these mosquitoes are occupying an ecological niche that probably has pretty minimal ecological value. You know, they're basically living in people's garbage, um, you know, in our cities. And so given the burden of disease that they cause, you could argue that for some really key species, um, eradication is a, a perfectly reasonable strategy. Um, and certainly where we have situations where mosquitoes are introduced from one country to another, um, we certainly want to eradicate those that might be considered to be pretty important um, invasive pests, for instance. So I, I think in some situations we can embrace these technologies and maybe look to uh, eradication. Certainly broad-scale eradication of all mosquito species is not something that I, I would strongly advocate for. But these ones that do bother us people, are these a particular species, a particular group of species? Yeah, probably, um, you know, when it comes to the viruses, things like dengue and Zika and chikungunya virus, you know, the two mosquitoes that um, we really are most concerned about is a species called Aedes aegypti, which is commonly known as the yellow fever mosquito, or Aedes albopictus that we often refer to as a tiger mosquito. And, and these are mosquitoes that at one stage would have lived in water-filled tree holes or water-filled axle, leaf axles of plants, but now they live in our pot plant sources, bird baths, rainwater tanks, discarded bottles, tins, rubbish, and things like that. And so that not only makes these mosquitoes really great at transmitting some of these pathogens because they live close to people, they love biting people, um, but also their populations are really enhanced by the habitats we create for them around the home in our, in our cities and suburbs. And is that why they tend to like us, because of the sort of similar habitat that we occupy or are, are they do they like our smell why why you, do they like us and other ones don't yeah so it's interesting because almost all mosquitoes do need that blood meal and and uh you know it's the female mosquito that needs that protein hit from the from the blood meal to help develop their eggs but the animals that mosquitoes bite can be incredibly varied and sometimes very specific so you'll have some mosquitoes that um, are very specific in wanting to feed on the blood of birds, uh, some uh, a range of mammals, um, and some uh, even quite specifically on primates, which of course in includes humans. And so it's these mosquitoes that have evolved in jungle or forest environments, primarily feeding off primates, um, they just shift across from monkeys to people. And, and instead of being in the, in, in the forests, they're in the jungles. And so um, not only does that mean that they do... Uh, like to bite people, they have a preference for biting people, 
but they're also pretty effective at moving the viruses around that um, typically infect people as well. And so all these things together make them, uh, you know, a, a, a perfect critter for, for driving these outbreaks of disease. We hear about mosquitoes referred to as the deadliest animals in the world. How, how deadly are we talking? Have we got stats on this? Yes, of course, mosquitoes are innocent bystanders in some ways in these outbreaks of mosquito-borne disease because, you know, they're just biting us. They just need the blood. They're not intentionally spreading these uh, uh, parasites and and, uh, other uh, pathogens that cause these outbreaks of disease. But, you know, unfortunately for things like malaria, that, that kills more than half a million people every year. Um, and hundreds of millions of people across the planet get infected with various mosquito-borne pathogens. So, you know, not only malaria parasites, but things like dengue, chikungunya, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis viruses. These all have a pretty significant uh, burden of disease on, on the human population. And, and as I said before, you know, more than half a million people um, die every year. So for that reason, mosquitoes are often considered the most dangerous animals on the planet just because they facilitate the spread of these um from these pathogens and so you know they estimate there's um you know well over 40 percent of the world's population is at risk of some of at least one of these potentially fatal mosquito-borne diseases so uh, certainly a, a health concern for authorities right around the planet i mean i assume people get that that it's not the mosquitoes that are killing us it's the diseases they spread did you ever come across people that actually think their blood sucking itself is gonna is gonna wipe us out yeah, look, it's certainly, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of find someone with a bit of sympathy for mosquitoes in the first place anyway. <laughs> so um, there's certainly that that uh, sort of vindictiveness, I guess, in their attitude towards mosquitoes. And, I mean, you, you raise a good point too is that, you know, mosquito biting alone may not kill anybody, but it can be incredibly annoying. And, and it's, you know, beyond beyond the disturbance and in the, the summer backyard barbecues, you know, for people who live close to wetland areas where there are occasionally incredibly abundant mosquito populations, you know, the burden of uh, sort of nuisance is pretty significant as well. And there are pl- plenty of places in coastal um, New South Wales where I work where, you know, residents can be in tears describing the disruption to their life, the quality of life that's caused by uh, mosquitoes during the summer months and particularly when there's sort of ideal environmental conditions so i don't think we should discount the the magnitude of impact that does result just from the the nuisance mosquitoes biting can cause yeah i remember going to visit someone a little while ago up on the the central coast and her this beautiful house that backed out onto this lovely still placid lagoon and it looked amazing with the whole time i was sitting there this is in the middle of winter so it wasn't bugged then but i just couldn't get the thought out of my head that in the summer this place must just be a living hell <laughs> in terms of mosquitoes so as yeah that's that's right and for a lot of people who talk to me about things like um you know needing to put mosquito repellent on to hang their clothes out or even go to work in the morning that dash from the front door to the car so um and you know i experience it myself as well in some of these wetland areas that um you know it's it's absolutely horrific sometimes and so to think about people who are living uh, day to day uh, on the doorstep of some of these areas it's easy to understand the disruption it causes to their lives but you see new housing developments going up all over the place and they are planning water bodies as part of them you, know, you want to live in this sort of creeklands area with these man-made lakes and lagoons and things are developers 
planning those uh, with mosquitoes in mind or, or is this an afterthought? Yeah, we're trying to work with local authorities so developers are thinking more about mosquitoes and, and possible impacts. And this is an issue, particularly in New South Wales and, and, and coastal areas around Australia, really, where, um, you know, the human population is growing, uh, urbanisation is increasing, and particularly along our coast. And so people are living closer to these wetlands and their associated mosquitoes in, in greater numbers than ever before. And, and while there are aspects to the design of urban developments and these urban water bodies that can minimise exposure to mosquitoes, and that's a lot of the work that I do with with local councils and, and uh, developers as well. Um, there's no escaping the fact that if you're living closer to these wetlands, mosquitoes are going to be um, you know, part of the concern associated with, um, with life on, on the coast. And, and that, of course, extends to you know, the, the, the need or the desire for us to live in greener cities as well. Mm. You know, we, we want um, more trees, we want more bushland and parkland areas, both for our own enjoyment and um, recreational activities, but also to improve the urban biodiversity. Um, but we need water to keep the, the, that vegetation going, and that often comes through water recycling or wetland construction and water body construction. And unfortunately, that brings with it a mosquito risk. And so um, I think there's a balance that's needed to, to exist there where we're creating potential opportunities for mosquitoes. We just don't want the mosquitoes in there in any great number. Mm, I remember doing work up in far north Queensland a while ago, and at the time there was a big sort of public awareness push for managing the water in your backyard, essentially, because that's up in the tropics, so it rains a lot. And they were just talking about high things you wouldn't even think of, like the divot on the little top of your green bin that can just be sitting there full of water all season round can be a haven for mosquitoes. You never think of that kind of stuff or at least I never thought of that kind of stuff yeah that's that's really important and it's a lot of the work we're doing at the moment with some of our local communities here in New South Wales is to be a bit more mindful about the wide range of opportunities mosquitoes have in our backyards so we we know from the local authorities in central and far north Queensland who spend a lot of time doing this um, and the reason they do this is because those mosquitoes that live in people's backyards are the ones that can potentially spread dengue virus. So we we historically have seen outbreaks of dengue in far north and, and central Queensland, but the mosquitoes up there don't exist sort of in southeast Queensland, New South Wales, or many other parts of, of um, Australia. So that's why it's been such a focus there. But these mosquitoes are incredibly adapted. And so any sort of small volume of water in the backyard they can breed in so it's not just your bird bath or your rainwater tank which is an obvious source but things like um you know the kids toys that are sitting mm. out in the backyard you know they get left out there for a couple of weeks and there's whole lots of little small compartments that full of fill of with water and you know it's it's pretty quick to to find mosquitoes moving into those and so i think that's one of our uh, our challenges as um, you know, people who work in the health department trying to educate people to reduce the risks of mosquitoes in their backyards is to understand all these other little nooks and crannies where mosquitoes might be breeding. Yeah, we should clarify that, uh, clarify for the people listening that it's not the, the adult flying mosquitoes that need the water necessarily, right? 
Yeah, so it's so mosquitoes have these this really interesting life cycle that includes both the sort of terrestrial phase, the sort of buzzing about mosquitoes that we're all familiar with, but they lay their eggs in and around water bodies, and when those eggs hatch, the the immature stages of mosquitoes need that water, and so you'll often see these little wrigglers in in water bodies in your backyard. You know, sometimes people confuse them for small fish or for tadpoles. But the mosquitoes need this aquatic habitat to complete their development. So they can't complete their life cycle in damp mud or the leaves of trees necessarily. They need that, that water. And during summer, it might only take a week from hatching to emergence. So they're very quick to um, exploit this water that's um, uh, lying around our backyards or our bushland. And so if you're looking to buy a house, you want to live in one of these waterfront areas, do you have like a rule of thumb? What makes a good safe for wetland to be around <laughs> yeah look i think living in uh look living in coastal areas of australia if you're near some extensive kind of um you know tea tree swamps and mangroves and salt marsh i think you have to accept that there's going to be mosquitoes um every now and again and that's part of living in the environment the same way we we live with um you know bushfires and floods mm. and, and other uh, local environmental hazards mosquitoes are just another one of those um, you know, but for those sort of that, are, whether you're building your pond in your backyard for fish or frogs or, or working with your local authority, the most important thing really we've learned is that um, if you can create a very healthy water body, the numbers of mosquitoes coming out of them are, are relatively low. So uh, one of my PhD students, Jane Hanford at the moment, is she's just coming to the end of her project and she's found a, you know, a strong link between the health of water bodies, the diversity of aquatic insects that are in there. Um, and really suppression of mosquito numbers. And so that's what we see in many situations. A, a good, healthy, good functioning environment um, can, can often really minimise the amount of mosquitoes that are being produced. Because I often, or, yeah, I often think about mosquito repellent and mosquito control as being a, I think about it in terms of individual uh, behaviour. <laughs> putting the right clothes on and putting you know, repellent on things, but it's it's not. It's an urban planning, controlling them at a, at a community level problem. Yeah, mosquitoes are a great example of what we might refer to as integrated pest management. So, um, you know, that's an expression that often gets circulated when you're talking about agricultural pests mm. and having a diverse and, and wide range of ways that you manage them. But managing mosquito risk is as much about managing human behavior as it is managing the populations of mosquitoes so not only do we have these sort of what we call personal protection measures like wearing repellent long sleeve clothes things like that um, that you've spoken about we also have urban planning issues where we kind of regulate or, or be mindful about the construction and maintenance of water bodies um, or where we're putting people and the concentration of people. But then we do have these mosquito control agents that local authorities may use in some parts of Australia and you know unfortunately there's not a good history of um, the use of these products and their environmental impacts internationally. We used to drain swamps. We used to sort of empty uh, petroleum products and oils and stuff into wetlands and areas like that. And obviously the discussions around the use of DDT um, is sort of strongly linked to, to sort of environmental protection as well. Um, these days, the products we use are much more ecologically sustainable, but there's no doubt that there's certain products that you would use that, that do have a risk to the environment. And so that's why you're much better to, you know, tackle the source of the mosquitoes rather than just react to the uh, swarms of mosquitoes that you might then discover flying out of your local wetlands. 
I mean, you're you're the guy to go to for hot tips on this stuff because you spend field seasons out in these mosquito-y areas collecting mosquitoes. What PPE strategies do you take? <laughs> well, look, long long sleeve shirt and long pants and things like that are, are a great physical barrier. But sometimes the clothes that I wear out into the swamp are not necessarily what you want to wear to your local barbecue um, <laughs> or, or relaxing in the backyard. Um, Look, I think for most people, the the best sort of personal protection you can you can get is by using a topical insect repellent, and and I know a lot of people are very reluctant to use those. There's often a perception that they pose a sort of an adverse risk to your health, but it's important to remember that all of the mosquito repellents that are sold in Australia need to be registered with the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority. That's a government, a federal government organisation that um, checks the efficacy and the safety of these products. So, you know, you can walk confidently into your supermarket and particularly your pharmacy um, and, and choose one of these products that is generally, generally pretty cheap, safe and effective to use. Um, and most of the products contain only one of a couple of different um, active ingredients, which are all been demonstrated to work pretty effectively. Um, it's when you start buying products from your local markets and things like that, or or a concoction that your your friends have cooked up in their <laughs> garage down the road, or you've you've pulled a, a do-it-yourself recipe off the internet. That's often when you're at much greater risk of having a skin reaction or something mm. like that, and and in the end of the, at the end of the day, probably a product that doesn't last as long as some of these commercial formulations. So I always say to people, look, you know, in much the same way you stock up on sunscreen before the summer starts, um, grab a few, um, uh, you know, uh, tubes or pump packs or, or sprays of mosquito repellent and keep them handy because that's really the uh, one of the most effective ways to stop mosquito bites. So your field season should be coming up pretty soon, I'm guessing. What's what's this field season going to be looking like? What are you up to? Yeah, so we usually run from a, around about uh, October through until April. That's usually the, the, the key to our season. It usually runs, I, I often joke that it runs mostly from Father's Day to Anzac Day is usually the mosquito <laughs> season uh, in most parts of New South Wales. But we're, we're at the mercy of the weather as well. So... Um, last summer, there weren't too many mosquitoes about. We had a pretty hot and dry start to the summer. Um, but I know this spring is predicted to be fairly wet and above average temperatures in many parts of New South Wales. So we might we may be out doing a, a bit of field work earlier than we would normally be. And I guess, to be honest, we're really seeing a, a steady but gradual trend, you know, perhaps in, in association with the climate change, is that the mosquito season is extending um, at both ends of the spectrum. So occasionally we will see a lot of mosquitoes active in September and we're certainly seeing more mosquito activity uh, extending into April and sometimes even May most years. So um, we've almost got to be um, on standby from, um, you know, from um, you know, September these days pretty regularly. And are you out there uh, running experiments to see what good conditions are or are you more long-term monitoring of populations? Yeah, a little bit of both. So we do have um, long-term monitoring programs for both local authorities in New South Wales as well as the state um, herbivorous surveillance program. Um, but we're also undertaking research programs as well. So um, 
I like to take advantage of spring when I'm out looking for certain types of mosquitoes we may only, may only see at this time of the year. Um, not only just collecting information on their abundance and diversity, but also building up our catalogues of, of images and specimens for further uh, reference, but also little experiments as well. Every season, there's an opportunity to do certain projects. So we might be looking at the relationship between mosquito abundance and diversity with local uh, wetlands, maybe looking at the animals they're feeding on, um, or maybe even testing out some of these new repellents or control measures um, to see how effective they are under field conditions. Because you've published a field guide to mosquitoes of Australia, and this is your kind of, like you have your bird book where you sit in the backyard and you see what you find and look it up and you go, oh, I know, I know what that is now. Do you know if people are using your mozzie guard in the same way? Are they finding things in the backyard and going, oh, look at that? Look, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, and, and I don't seem to have as much passion for mosquito watches as perhaps you do for bird or frog <laughs> watches. Um, uh, I, I like to think I'm trying to change that, but um, we, need a, we need a guide perhaps to a squashed mosquito on the arm. That's probably mm. the, the images that people <laughs> see the most. But, but I must admit that, you know, with the quality of cameras that are now available, both in terms of the, the, the macro lenses that people can get for their, for their cameras or even the quality of cameras on phones, we're starting to see more people being able to take photos of mosquitoes in much more detail than, than they've been, it's been possible before. And, and this is really interesting, you know, websites like iNaturalist um, and some of the various citizen science projects are increasing in popularity and, and people who are interested in mosquitoes um, are, are using those. And I think mosquitoes are a really interesting one because while people are interested in mosquitoes in the same way they may be interested in other aspects of our wildlife, so, you know, other insects, frogs or birds, for instance, because it comes with that public health importance or the health and well-being issues for the family, uh, I think there's an extra level of interest in mosquitoes. And, and so um, I think in that regard, there are people that are getting curious about being able to tell uh, one mosquito from another. And I think, in, yeah, again, in recent years, I'm seeing many more people on social media and through citizen science projects having a keen interest in able to differentiate some of these um, mosquitoes. I was actually having this conversation the other day about peacock spiders <laughs> and how they're this now they're super famous uh, you know animal icons, but we've known about them since the 1800s and nobody's really cared about them until recently. And yeah, we we're saying it was that it's it's digital photography and social media that's made these little spiders celebrities. Do you think that you know, are are you hoping that there will be more of an appreciation of mosquitoes for their you? Know, beauty and diversity because of this yeah look i think i i hope there, i hope there will be at, at the end of the day we still want to stop people getting bitten by mosquitoes and mm. so there's always going to be that um you know that mentality that you've sort of got to get rid of them out of your backyards and and kind of certainly keep them away from biting you but i think there's real benefit in in understanding that there's a great diversity of um mosquitoes and some of them do actually look quite beautiful and, and quite pretty um, and they do occupy these weird and wonderful ecological niches and so I think if we can get people to understand the the good side of mosquitoes I think that can only help better understand the importance of biodiversity in the local environment and and for people to appreciate that that there are all of these sort of uh, either misunderstood or, or um, overlooked aspects of our local ecosystems and environment that, um, you know, a reason for them, the environment to be preserved. And as we've talked about already, I think encouraging a healthy environment with lots of other 
um, animals that can eat or outcompete mosquitoes, um, maybe that helps keep the mosquito numbers in check a little bit and, and might result in a few less people being bitten by mosquitoes and maybe a few less cases of mosquito-borne disease every year. I do feel like we need a, a word for mosquito fanciers, though. You know, we've got twitchers for birds, but we need a... Itches, itches has been um, has has been proposed on occasion. Um, uh, um, um, you know, crazy people kind of is often uh, swamp people. Yeah, yeah swamp. Yeah, I know. Although, um, yeah. So I'll, I'll leave that to you and your uh, podcast subscribers to, to nominate some uh, some good terms there. But I like um, yeah, itchers. I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you talk about the diseases that. Uh, are involved here and you're hearing things like malaria and dengue and Ross River virus and things. These to me all sound like very tropical, have to be in the midst of the jungle type of thing, but you're down doing work in urban Sydney. What sort of stuff are you dealing with there? Yeah, so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about mosquito-borne disease in Australia is that you're right that malaria and dengue and Japanese encephalitis and yellow fever these are generally uh, mosquito-borne diseases that are, in, uh, that are impacting tropical parts of the world. But for something in Australia like Ross River virus or a, a similar virus called Barmer Forest virus, these are viruses that cause a disease that thankfully isn't fatal but can be severely debilitating. You, you get fever, rash, headache, sometimes severe joint pain, incredible fatigue that leaves you bedridden for many weeks, sometimes months. But there's a risk of that right across Australia. And okay. some of our biggest outbreaks of mosquito-borne disease have actually been on the south coast of New South Wales, Victoria, southern areas of, of Western Australia. We see outbreaks of disease even in Tasmania, South Australia. It's, it's not just in the northern states. And so that's one of the things that makes Ross River virus particularly unique is that there is really a risk in almost every part of, of Australia where you get ideal situations occurring together. And for something like Ross River virus, the really unique aspect of that is that the mosquitoes don't hatch out of the wetlands carrying the virus. They've got to bite native animals first. And most commonly, that's uh, kangaroos and wallabies. And so it's a unique, a truly unique Australian disease in that regard is that, you know, mosquitoes pick up the virus by biting a, a wallaby or a kangaroo. They get infected and then, then pass it on to us. And so it you know, it's generally a rural or a regional disease, but we're now seeing transmission at the outskirts of our cities. And, and unfortunately, that's an unexpected outcome of being better at conserving urban wildlife. You know, we're doing a good job of rehabilitating our bushland areas. That's great for our native animals. But unfortunately, when mosquitoes are in the mix, that can often contribute to uh, local uh, risk of outbreaks of disease. I guess that kind of highlights what you were saying before, that you know, urban expansion and wanting to live in green suburbs and have that you know almost sort of seamless connection between where we live and, and nature it, yeah it, it does sort of make a perfect storm for transmission if it also involves things like kangaroos and wallabies yeah that's right and and i think that's one of the really fascinating things about my job is that you know when i'm thinking about mosquito-borne disease i i can't just think about the mosquitoes you you have to think about the wetlands and the wildlife as well and so that op offers you know great opportunities to collaborate with you know people who do research you know, interested in wildlife and wildlife diseases as well as um you know water sensitive urban design and urban planning issues and so 
you know, unlike many other entomologists that are, you know, somewhat limited to working on their particular uh, organisms or their environments, I get to sort of collaborate with a lot of different people, which is always a, a really, um, you know, interesting aspect of my work. And I guess you have to think about the psychology of people as well and why we want to live <laughs> where we live. And it, yeah, it, it sounds just so idyllic to be living in a treehouse somewhere amongst the forest, but it comes at a price. <laughs> Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, some people, that's not necessarily for everybody, too. Mm. And so, um, you know, the the ways that people interact with the environment is a really important thing to understand. And so, uh, you know, whether it's someone who doesn't really like the bush because they're scared there's going to be spiders and snakes, um, you know, through to someone who, um, you know, wants their local urban wetland designed in a pr- particular way that may look very pretty or, you know, confer- confer- conform to their ideas of what Mm. is aesthetically a pretty looking wetland but ecologically that doesn't quite work Mm. and so there's also those interactions that we often have to you know often have to juggle the perceptions of the environment and the environmental risks associated with you know where people want to live and what they want to look at and you mentioned climate change before is is there a worry that some of these tropical diseases in warmer areas might be moving further south as the climate warms up yeah, that's a that's an ongoing concern. But one of the challenges there is that you know mosquitoes kind of interact very in very unusual ways with both the climate, but also the things that drive outbreaks of mosquito-borne disease can be very complex as well. And so, even though it seems reasonable to think that a, in a warmer, wetter world we'll see some of these tropical diseases moving south. Um, those diseases will only be a problem where we've got the mosquitoes that are able to transmit the pathogens are present. And so if, if you take something like dengue, for example, so it doesn't matter how warm Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne or Adelaide gets, um, unless we have the mosquitoes there that can transmit these viruses, that we won't have a risk of disease transmission. And possibly what's going to introduce the mosquitoes into our cities is, is not climate change, but increasing urbanisation and movement of people and their belongings. And mm. so, um, you know, global travel, although it's kind of dramatically <laughs> slowed at the moment because of COVID-19, um, it's that sort of uh, international movement which is more likely to going to introduce these exotic mosquitoes um, uh, into our cities. And so that's as much of a concern as uh, a changing climate. I've just got my fingers crossed that canned toads will move further south as well and, and they'll hopefully keep mosquito larvae under control. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I think that's very optimistic and I, um, I'll leave it for you to advocate for the um, dispersal of cane toads to control <laughs> mosquitoes. Um, and, and look, to be honest, the, the reality is, is that we don't have a good, even for frogs, for instance, we don't really have a good handle on what sort of role for mosquito control they do and, and the, the handful of dietary studies out there that I have seen it seems to be that you know a lot of these frogs are probably more likely to be eating other animals than mosquitoes and and I think this is another you know this is another area where there hasn't been really a lot of work done we we did some work a, a PhD student I was working with called Leo Gonzalez Leroy Gonzalez uh, did some great work on microbats and their consumption of um, um, mosquitoes in their diet um, and what we found was that mosquitoes were really just the snack food in these animals. They weren't a staple in their diet. So, um, yeah, so, so far we're yet to find an animal that you can kind of release with, <laughs> re- release with enthusiasm to think they're going to eat through um, uh, a whole range of mosquitoes. Yeah, I've, I've, I think we've learned a lot about biocontrol and what not to do <laughs> in the past. So, yeah, probably shouldn't go 
too gung-ho with releasing things to control mosquitoes. But whenever I do these interviews, I always like to ask people how they got into the fields that they got into. And, you know, I sort of see patterns uh, coming up. Usually you're sort of insecty spider people went into it wanting to be a marine biologist that swims with dolphins and then fell into spider world. Bird people often are just obsessed with birds from a young age and then go on to work with birds later. Can I hazard a guess and say that you didn't have a obsession with mosquitoes as a child and wanted to do this as a career? No, you're exactly, you're exactly right. (laughs) You know, I, I, um, uh, I, I sort of had an interest in science I um I did work experience during high school at the Bureau of Meteorology, which I really quite liked, and I uh, had aspirations of working on some remote island manning the meteorological station or something like that. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, look, I, I fell into mosquito sort of research and this career through just dumb luck, and and I as an environmental science kind of um, uh, undergraduate and and did honours looking at insects and rehabilitated sand dunes of all things um and then then that led to me picking up a scholarship in conjunction with the 2000 olympics so the re the redevelopment of the city olympic park site in sydney um contained a lot of wetland rehabilitation and construction and mosquitoes were a a major concern about that and so there was a, a project that um i was fortunate enough to pick up a scholarship to do and and uh yeah then went down this path and what was really interesting is that, um, you know, I'm, I was really an ecologist at heart, interested in how, um, you know, insects interact with the environment and mosquitoes were a, a great sort of model for that. Um, and with them comes this extra level of interest from public health. So, um, yeah, fell into a career by dumb luck and, luck, and very <laughs> fortunate to, um, uh, to have been able to continue that for, um, you know, over 25 years now. Well, there's no going back from it now. You, you're you're the mozzy guy. That's kind of your brand, right? I'm I'm destined to to live out my working days in the swamp. I'm afraid, James. <laughs> Did you also uh, predict the amount of media appearances you'd be making as a scientist? No, no, I didn't. But it's uh, amazing how um, how much interest there is in mosquitoes. And I think, I guess over the over the years, I've learned that. You know, everybody has a question or a story about mosquitoes, or you know, something that sort of sparks their interest above and beyond what the, you know, the news cycle are is sort of during every summer. You know, when, you know, when bushfires don't dominate um, the headlines, often outbreaks of mosquito-borne disease or or, or, or swarms of mosquitoes certainly do. And um, uh, so, yeah, there's always a lot of interest um, uh, from the media and the general public. And you know, I see that as being part of my job, really. You know. Um, as much as my job is about understanding mosquitoes and their interaction in the environment, I think it is trying to stop people getting sick from mosquito-borne disease. And I think part of that is about, you know, trying to spread good public health messages and sharing tips and tricks on how to avoid mosquito bites. And, um, yeah, that, that includes, of course, dealing a, a lot with the media every summer. So I guess summer for you just looks, you're sort of back and forth between the swamp and a recording studio <laughs> of some sort. Yeah, off- Often it often it feels like that, and and uh, my apologies, particularly to the ABC for trudging in mud from the swamp every now and again. <laughs> do you feel like you get to do much of a, a deep dive into the work you do and the science you do when you're doing this, or is it mostly getting on and telling people to make sure to put fly screens up and use AeroGuard? You know. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's uh, I've got 
both a, a, a wonderfully sort of diverse kind of workload um, every summer. Um, so look, sometimes when I'm doing work, which might be of a consultancy basis for local council or state government, um, that often doesn't allow such a deep dive into uh, mosquito research as I would like. So sometimes I just don't have the time to do projects in, in that way. But always thankful to work with students who are looking for projects and, and I'm happy to kind of work with them to provide them the opportunity to do some of these deep dives. But, you know, it's funny, I when I started in this career, you know, just weeks really into my PhD, someone said to me that, um, you know, I was sort of wasting my time a little bit working on mosquitoes because we already knew everything we needed to know about them. <laughs> um, and and that's certainly not that's proven not to be the case and there's sort of new things we're learning all the time and um you know despite mosquitoes being an incredibly well studied um animal there's still lots of gaps in our understanding and lots of opportunities to do more work so um there's no shortage of ideas um it's opportunities <laughs> that's what i've got to find my find my opportunities now more uh, more than ever before to try to pursue some of these research interests well if people do want to pick your brains about mosquitoes some more and and they can they can even contact you directly you're all over social media right i'm pretty easy to find if you google cameron webb and mosquitoes you'll find me but certainly um active on on twitter and facebook uh, just look for at mozzie bites or search for cameron webb and i'm sure it won't take long to find me and, and always happy to chat to uh, potential collaborators and students looking for um you know some work with mosquitoes and and just a tip to everyone don't open the conversation with uh, so you, you must like mosquitoes eh <laughs> I'm always happy to share my love of mosquitoes and maybe if that sparks a bit of interest in someone else, I'm always happy to have that conversation, James, <laughs> even, even with you from time to time. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's, it's the one question that bugs me when I tell people I work on insects and spiders. They go, ah, oh, so pest control. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> not quite, I, no. I, well, I do have to apologise because, uh, you know, not many people can say that in their job they're responsible for the death of millions of native animals every year. But uh, <laughs> I do do uh, a fair, help coordinate a fair bit of mosquito control. And so I'm, I'm killing them as much as I'm embracing them every summer. So um, I don't want to be accused of being a hypocrite there. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Cameron. I'll, I'll let you get back to it. That's awesome, James. Look, thanks for taking the time to talk mozzies with me. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm turning into a big fan of them. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Catch you later. That was Dr. Cameron Webb from New South Wales Health and the University of Sydney. If you want his mozzie tips, you can follow him at Mozzie Bites. And if you also search for Mozzie Bites on Facebook, you'll find him there. You can also follow In Situ Science on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at In Situ Science or on our website, insituscience.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>